So, Becky, what comes next in this list? UK, USA, Australia. These aren't winners of the Eurovision Song Contest, are they, Simon? Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast, your half-hour digest of all that's good in the trade union movement at this precise point in time, with me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. And Becky, the answer to the question, what comes after UK, US, Australia, is indeed Sweden. But it's nothing to do with Eurovision. No, 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 no. It's not Eurovision. It's who, which country hosts the most listeners to our podcast. Do you know our podcast is listened to in over 130 countries around the world? Do you know what? I, I actually didn't. Who are those people? <laughs> Somewhere in Burkina Faso, someone is listening to the Union 21 podcast. I'm but bless m- you for doing that. <laughs> but yes, Sweden is is up there, way in the way in the, way in the top five. So, listeners, today, as you may have gathered, it's a Swedish special. And with us, we are delighted to have two senior uh, representatives from the Swedish White Collie. I got that wrong last time. Yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I apologise <laughs> to, to our guests. Interesting fact. Yeah. More than one person in every 20. That's from babies to very old people and people who aren't in the labour market. More than one person in every 20 in Sweden is a member of that union. So how did they do that? Simon? How did they do that? With us to tell <laughs> to, to tell our, all are the two Fredericks. Uh, if you could introduce yourself, gents. Frederick Hanson, um, working with membership development and uh, yeah, recruiting new members, basically. And uh, Frederick Soderqvist, uh, I'm an economist at the uh, Collective Bargaining and Policy Unit and a PhD student in economics. Well, thank you both very much indeed for taking time to, to join us on this podcast. I suppose the, the question is, as Becky and I have just kind of t- touched base on, that's a phenomenal membership density. I mean, the population of Sweden is about 10 million. Your union is just over 600,000, I, I think. I mean, if, if if a union had that level of density over here, they'd have three and three quarters, four million members. It's, it's yeah. staggering. Yeah, and, and so listeners of the podcast will remember a few months ago, I went out to Sweden with a group of uh, colleagues to look at kind of Swedish growth and, and to kind of hear what, what was going on in Sweden. And... All the unions there were really fantastic and gracious, uh, but the thing that literally made me cry was Unionen. And in a good way, I In hope. a good way, in a good way, yeah. So you're like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen. But the, the, the interesting thing for me and the reason why we've got these guys over to talk to uh, union leaders over the next couple of days is simply um, how do you create a union for the 21st century in two ways. One, uh, in terms of our kind of the organising, the membership, the, the reps, the kind of having that kind of density and that pull. And the other one is how do we articulate a vision for work and how do we kind of place ourselves as the leaders in, in the workforce? And for me, without any pressure on you guys, I think Unionen has done a really good job um, in working out how they, they could do that. And I think there was a lot of lessons that, that we could learn. And I think that people often kind of go, oh, yeah, it's Scandinavia. Everybody likes one another. Everybody wants to share all the time. And <laughs> I've watched, you know, the bridge. I know how it's like and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and actually, what struck me was the sheer work and effort it takes in order to get to that place. That, that we as sort of British trade unionists think, oh, it's all right for them, they've got the culture, it's, it makes it a lot easier. And not realising that that culture takes a lot of work. 
and is also under duress itself. I mean, I, I believe, am I right in saying there is still no government in Sweden? There's a, a stalemate election with, with a far-right party yeah. holding the balance of power, which is, which is you know, dangerous time, worrying time. Yeah. Um, so, a- anyway, that goes so, off down a, a cold yeah. <laughs> may, may, Maybe. So, please, um, share, share your wisdom. <laughs> so, Simon's just like, to the floor, say whatever you want. But I, I think the, the, the interesting thing is, is hearing a bit of the history how you kind of came to this point and the sort of things that you're working on um, to try and position Unionen and the union movement as a kind of a relevant 21st century being in work almost. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I, um, and first of all, thank you so much for having us. Uh, one thing that I realized uh, actually today at lunch was um, one historic uh, episode was actually the forming of Unionen as well to a merger of two unions, we had the possibility to create a whole new union and a part of that DNA in that union was to be within the 21st century as well. So that's a good start for developing, uh, making new things and also setting a new culture. It was back in the days 2010 about um, when our board uh, gave us uh, quite a big task to um, grow the members, the members uh, with 100,000 uh, within the period of four years. Uh, and for the time being, we were 500,000 uh, wow. members and uh, the membership numbers were going down. So that's 20% a year, <laughs> first of all. Um, and that was also the start point of uh, turning every stone doing something new that we hadn't done. Uh, because if we would continue doing the same things that we did before, mm-hmm. we would get the same results. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was also a starting point of a very big uh, development for, for, for the union. Well, one main thing, and the thing that got your cry <laughs> as well, brought a tear to your eyes, yeah. uh, was uh, we also uh, we realized that we needed to change the image of Unionland from being helpless in distress to improvers of work life, uh, to see uh, work life a bit more positive than we used to, because the members uh, normally enjoy their work. Yeah, well, I, and I, I noticed from your, from your website that the strap line is, we have different titles, but the same pursuit of success, safety, and joy in working life, it is our strength, yep. which is a tremendous rallying call. Yep. Yeah. And that's our vision. That's together with with all the members, we create a good work life, including all that. And, and was there was there a consensus within the union that this change had to happen? Because that is that's a, that is a that is almost revolutionary. Uh, it's a huge change because mm-hmm. often the the need the perceived need to continue to service your existing members mm-hmm. acts as a break on very bold organising initiatives. Yeah. I would say it was um, a consensus in the board. And they had some uh, not realizing that it was impossible to do me mm. uh, <laughs> and doing all the hard work, basically. No, not all the hard work. But, but you also need some uh, enough people to buy in yeah. on what you're yeah. what you're trying to do. Not yeah. everybody. But I think if we need to add on that the union itself was formed two years before that. Of course. Uh, and one of the reasons Unionen was formed is that before that there were two separate unions. One was white-collar workers in the industrial sector and the other in the service sector, whatever that is. Uh, and one of the problems that the two unions saw was that we were having, we call them uh, boundary disputes. Who should yeah. organize who yeah. within yeah. these yes. sectors? Yeah. And was, we have those was, too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what was becoming increasingly clear was that industry was becoming services and services were becoming industry yeah. in a yeah. way. 
industrial firms, Sweden has a lot of large industrial firms, but I mean, they were producing products, but selling services around yeah. the products yeah. and making a lot of money doing that. That is yeah. what industrial firms do today. So merging the two unions actually made a lot of sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was an Not industrial just redu- sense. Yeah, yeah, industrial sense, but also making sense that maybe we shouldn't separate industry and services to yeah. this degree that we've yeah. been doing. It's yeah. becoming one thing. And that is because of structural change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the, the response to the, um, to quote our friend David Well, Simon, the, the landscape, the external factors changed and the union had the opportunity to change as well. So, or to consider a different way of being in order to continue to be relevant for that, for the workforce. Mm-hmm. So once the decision was taken and, and there was buy into the vision and the practical steps that went with it, what, what happened next, as it were? Well, the first step was um, to uh, listen to the target group. What, what, do, what, what are, they, what, what are they, uh, their concerns? Uh, who are they? What, what do they feel about their work life? And we found out that uh, those uh, not associated with unionen or unions uh, as a whole they really enjoy their work and they, uh, they are quite happy about their work. So we have to change our way of talking to them. Uh, and then the next step was to how can we manifest that in a, a quite well, different way anyway. Uh, so um, we took the help of a very good ad firm to uh, find a concept that uh, really explains that or uh, emphasis that you, when joining Union, you get powers out of the ordinary at work. So we have uh, a superhero theme mm-hmm. in our advertisement, and that's quite different for a union, I would say. Uh, but also, uh, it re- it really works really well for us anyway, uh, because our members are superheroes every day at work, and they feel like superheroes every day at work. Well, not not every day, but most of the day, certainly. Yeah. yeah, it's a message that it's a message that appeals. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's good. It's good, isn't it? It's really good. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, is that you could also bring it down to kind of traditional organising, which is you start with where your members are. You don't try to enforce any kind of agenda. You listen to how they see work, what they think are the problems or not, or how they would like to improve work. I suppose that would be a bit more of a... A, a better way of putting it and yeah now from now on in we are not allowed to talk about problems work but you know <laughs> the, the way they wanted to make work better yep. and therefore kind of build around that that's your starting point and if it's not your starting point then you have to ask kind of to what extent the union is reflective of its membership mm-hmm. and something that might be worth mentioning as well is that I mean in Sweden typically well actually throughout the, the economy white collar workers are normally organized in separate organizations from blue collar workers yep. yeah yep. they also have separate sectoral collective agreements often mm. and I think that is one of the key factors to why union density is so high is that the white collar workers are actually nowadays they're actually even more organized than blue collar workers I think white collar union density is 73 percent and blue collar workers is 65 percent mm-hmm. oh interesting be wrong but blue collar worker unions are actually declining and that's mm-hmm. that's really bad uh, and they are themselves looking at how can they turn around this trend but organizing white collar worker it's not there's no textbooks on how you organize white collar workers if you look at the textbooks of unions it's blue collar workers in mm-hmm. usually capital heavy industries those tend to be easier to organize because capital doesn't move that easily mm-hmm. uh, in those industries uh, so i think all the approaches we take we we we, we organize a group of 
workers that outside the Nordics they, they typically are in union members and that's mm-hmm. reflected in how the collective agreements are structured but it's also of course reflected in our unions politi- we are politically unaffiliated we're not apolitical yeah. but some issues we, we, we see that we have a clear dividing line between our members because our members are the swing voters in Swedish mm-hmm. elections typically mm-hmm. uh, but even that it's a union is at its heart I think a collectivistic union we, we build on strength in numbers yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. the Sweden house has academic unions for white collar workers and they build much more on professional identity and academic yeah. background Whereas in Union, which is the largest, is, is more built on, on as I said, yeah. strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that is pretty old-fashioned Union way of seeing it. But you can even fit these very politically heterogeneous groups yeah. in here. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. there, is, there is a common base, isn't there, as you say. If, if there is a, a view that collectively people can get more than, or do more, fulfill more of their ambitions and all the rest of it, get more of their needs than they can individually. But of course, the whole pressure in modern economies is towards atomization of the workforce and towards, towards platform working in, or precarious mm-hmm. working in one form or, or, or another. How has the union been able to adjust its footwork to, to meet the challenge of, of that fragmentation of the work? So, for starters, I mean, we, I started working at five years ago, and one thing that I realized in this job, a lot of the work I do is actually looking into the past, what kind of policies have we passed. Uh, and there was early on some really interesting work done. So, in 1996, the Congress of the Industrial Union, that formed a new one, uh, created a self-employed membership. And that was in response to seeing members being laid off. We had a big economic crisis in the early 90s in Sweden. Uh, I think, uh, I can't remember the numbers now, but... If it was uh, 45% of the local union chapters had seen members being laid off returning to work, 75% of those people were doing the same work tasks. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was, there, was, there was a fairly big consensus that this is a problem. Should they be covered by the union umbrella or not? Uh, and they did some work and they said that we will open up the membership. We will no longer only organize employees. We will organize mm-hmm. workers mm-hmm. in yeah. the sector. So organizing self-employed is something we've been doing since the membership was formed in 1998. So it's 20 years old now. It hasn't really picked up in growth for the past few years. But one thing that we've seen there, like Frederick said, we have to look at our members' reality. A lot of our self-employed members like being self-employed. So our job then is to actually help them fulfill their career, help them get security in their job, which is actually really hard because it's quite a different group to organize. But many of them want to do this voluntarily. It's opportunity-based entrepreneurship, as we say. Mm. And who are we to say that they shouldn't mm. be doing this? Mm. Instead, we see we support them. Right, uh, yeah. A challenge ahead then is, of course, how do we make that more equal to normal employment? Maybe yeah. you can't do it 100%, but you can change a lot of things. So, you know, that's one thing we do. Um, other than that, I think we have a big advantage in Sweden in the fact that we have sectoral collective bargaining or branch bargaining. Uh, and that means that as, I mean, I think the average workplace in Sweden has, in 1970, I think it was nine and a half or ten people per work, working per workplace. Now it's down to five. Mm-hmm. So you've seen the size, you know, you had the huge conglomerates, they have, mm-hmm. they have shrunk as corporations have focused on core businesses and outsourced everything else. We have been able to keep up uh, collective bargaining density uh, to a high degree because, well, if, a new, if they outsource to another firm, well, there's an agreement for that. Yeah. And yes. their competitors will have the, the same agreement. Yeah. So yeah. it's an idea you have neutrality of competition. Yeah. Uh, so I think that is one factor that has actually helped. 
us to be more resilient in the fact that you know even Swedish workplaces have become more fractured. Mm. Uh, if you get to the gig economy or platform economy or sharing economy or whatever you want to say, mm. uh, we've been doing quite a lot of work on that. Uh, I mean, the first thing we did was when the sharing economy debate came to Sweden in about 2015 was to work out is this really sharing or not. Mm. And we said that, well, even if there is sharing going on there, but we said that, okay, we, we, there seems to be labor being carried out here. Should we base our regulations mm. on the motif behind the transaction? And we said no. Uh, instead, we say that uh, what's happening here is we have these American companies usually, they have developed uh, fairly advanced digital platforms that can lead and direct work for a um, fragmented workforce, essentially. Uh, and uh, what should the Swedish response be? Well, we shouldn't be running to the legislators. That is mm. something we always, we, we want to keep regulations in the agreements. Don't want to run to the parliament because the parliament probably won't do a good job and it right. actually means that if the yeah. parliament regulates something we have failed and that means we are losing That's, clout. Yeah it's an interesting way of looking at uh, it. But what we saw in this was that <clears throat> the significant innovation here is the digital platform itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the digital platform is programmed by somebody. We have sectoral agreements in place. They're just firms. We don't we shouldn't care if they call themselves sharing or crowdsourcing or whatever. If they're in a certain sector, if they're deemed to be employers, uh, we take the employer's case for because you can talk about self-employed platforms as well. But if they are deemed to be employers, meaning they, they coordinate work to a degree where, where they mm. should be considered having responsibilities of an employer, then we have sectoral agreements for them. Unless the platform invents an entirely new sector, there's a relevant sectoral agreement here. Mm. Now, what, the, what we found in this is that what these platforms can do is actually automate being an employer. An employer telling you to be at this place in time, performing yeah. this work to a yeah, certain yeah. degree of quality. A human normally does that. Yeah. And we have collective agreements to regulate the relationship between the two humans that does this. How do we do that if the, the, the manager human is an algorithm? Well, here it's where it gets really interesting because yeah. this is yes, where we start absolutely. to say... How <laughs> interesting how can we... slash slightly worrying, but yeah, go <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> oh, from, from an economist's perspective, it's really fun. <laughs> uh, but but you know, it, turns, it, it can lead to terrible things. And, yeah. and the, proof okay. is, the proof here is yeah. that a lot of them... A lot of the, the labor platforms around in the UK, and usually it's the same in the UK and Sweden, mm. they don't do a really good job being an employer. Yeah. That, that is something we, we can, that's the usual case. Now, what we found in this is that if you sign these collective agreements, if you have a really advanced platform that automates the employer to a really high degree, if you want to sign an agreement, you have to translate this legal text, which is normally quite easy to read. Yeah. Uh, our agreements are fairly easy to read you have to be able to translate them into your software. So what we're practically working on now is helping platform firms that have signed collective, we have a few of these gig economy firms mm. that have the temporary agency agreement in Sweden is, oh, yeah, is what yeah. we use quite often to regulate them. But we have discussions with them saying, do you have any problems interpreting anything in these agreements? Do you have anything that you wish to improve? Maybe we have some feedback. Maybe we can talk about how do you work proactively with work safety mm. using these apps. Mm. Maybe we as a union even have some proposals saying, how do you make sure that this person is doing a safety walk now? Well, yeah. maybe they can sign with their digital identity or something. Then you can actually make sure that the rules are followed. Because what we see in this is that there's always a human error in interpreting the agreements. Mm -hmm. Not that this will be perfect, but if we can get some of the more routine things into software, mm -hmm. maybe we can have better regulatory compliance yeah, yeah. than we did before. 
and and it's interesting because essentially what you're already doing is planning for that change from there being the collective agreements that are then kind of managed by people in a workplace to collective agreements which are then translated into zeros and ones Mm -hmm. and and put into the well i mean yeah conceptually that is essentially what what we try to do but that isn't very practical no no so what we're doing now is actually taking that concept into practical situations and we don't just see the situations in these gig platforms we see large swedish industrial firms that use some forms of uh, algorithmic management where we have used existing regular i mean the collective agreements are you know technology neutral Mm-mm. essentially it's just how can we help programmers understand them better mm-hmm. the management the managers who, who, who the entrepreneurs who, who hire the programmers how can we help them to follow the labor codes more closely mm. um, I think one example we have is from a mine you don't really think about mines when you do gig economy but we have um, or, or even algorithmic management uh, everyone knows about Amazon. Uh, fact yeah, that yeah. you know you yeah, can't yeah. go; they will beep if you go to the yeah, bathroom yeah. for more than yeah. two minutes or something. Uh, we have that. We've had that same discussion in one of our mines in Sweden. Actually, several mines. Uh, there's a mine called Garpenberg Mine. Uh, I can recommend everyone to read about. Uh, there's an article in the New York Times from a year ago called "The Robots Are Coming and Sweden Is Fine," and it talks about work in that mm-hmm, mine. Mm-hmm. Every single miner who is underground has a GPS tracker. Now, it's a really cool GPS system because it's in 3D. They do a lot of industrial development down there with a lot of the top Swedish tech companies. But everyone has a GPS tracker because that's a really good idea to have in a mine. GPS is really good technology to increase work safety because when something goes wrong in the mine, not if, it's really good to know where everyone is Mm -hmm. in case you need to do rescue operations or you need to know everyone is fine, but we have to do these measures. The problem with those GPS trackers is they don't turn off when you go to the bathroom. What have the unions done? Well, mm. they used the Swedish co-determination law and said, we would like to do a regular, just a regular meeting where we talk about the bathroom breaks and GPS. And then the employers had were promised that, no, we will not check when you go to the bathroom. And we will have probably some routines around this. And the problem is solved. And no one, this is a pretty mundane example. Yeah. But in, I think in the end, you can see that's actually practicing co-determination over the software that's running you. Yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah. part of your work or the management. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, I'm finding in this work, we started looking, how do we regulate Uber? And it scales up mm-hmm. at light we, speed. But it's actually quite to more things now. we can help <laughs> solve problems Ab- with. Absolutely. But, but I mean, you know, we, we joke, we joke and, and are self-deprecating about, about, about the appeal of this sort of podcast. Right? No, this you're di- my geeks, everyone. Right, you're this, my geeks. this directly affects millions upon yep. millions, yep. if yeah. not billions of workers across the globe. Yep. Yeah. Because the situation you've just described, Frederick, is just about unimaginable in the UK at the moment. There is not the platform on which, no pun intended, not the platform on, on which to oblige employers, even if they were as organised as they, they, they seem to be in Sweden, to, to collaborate with us on, on, on this matter. There has been such a retreat in terms of a regulatory or a culturally, culturally engaging environment that we can't access algorithms and, uh, and influence them in the same way that you routinely can. In most, but not all yeah, cases. Yeah, but, but also I still think that the idea of negotiating around and kind of doing industrial work around algorithms is still fairly niche for us over here. You know, we're still not, we're not really having the debate. I think there was one motion by community at Congress this year around algorithms. We're still not having that debate amongst the union movement about 
how we kind of can influence those algorithms within our context, you know, and to, like how would we go about negotiating what those algorithms yeah. look like? Who who are the people that can say, actually, I've looked at your code and your code doesn't do what you said it, that you negotiated that it was, we don't have that. We, we are, yeah, we are terrifyingly behind the curve. Well, you know, look at it in an optimistic way. We, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've got room for growth in an ever kind of changing environment. But I think the other interesting thing, and so there is a video that uh, Union put together, the one that made me cry, where uh, the ad agency told us it was the one for the geeks. Mm -hmm. They said that they had turned around to you all and said, uh, your, the audience isn't you because you're all union geeks. Mm -hmm. And the audience, we all went, <laughs> Everybody pretended to be really offended by that, and then I just went, "Well, yeah, come on, that is that is true. It's about hitting our, it's not about hitting our buttons." Um, but in within that, there is a bit where you have one woman talking, and she's sort of laying out the problems for white collar workers now around digitalization mm -hmm. and work life balance, and and all those sorts of things where life and work is changing so much and the union is coming here and kind of very much saying yeah and that's okay we'll take you like your work and but it has all of these different challenges and we're here to help you to negotiate those challenges yeah, i well. think that you have to i mean we have to, we all have to realize that we can't stop the development but we have to be able to make it as good as we can yeah uh, and and be a part of that making the the future as bright as we can mm. all together mm. and i think most uh, well <laughs> the old way of doing union work is to say no we don't yeah. want that and also think that it won't happen then but it will happen so let's join the join the joyride do but join the ride and and yeah. and do the best you can well we're either going to get to to continue that notion of riding we're either going to get into the car and be a yep. co-driver, or we're going to get run over by it. Yep. Okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Becky and I agree. Well, well, we always agree. But, but, like, but I think I think there's something like because uh, I've been I've been have I have the privilege now of doing a PhD on on work time, mm -hmm. uh, meaning I have time to actually look into industrial relations history in Sweden. You know, the purpose is to talk more generally about unions in economics context. But I think one important thing that you say, union, the traditional response has been saying no. Well, that's that's not entirely true. I mean, unions were formed once upon a time as a reaction to technology. Yeah. That they weren't, I mean, not, ne well, except for Luddites, of course, it's a, I mean, the union movement started in the UK somehow with, with Luddism because well, industrialization. <laughs> well, exactly. But, but eventually, unions developed really good models to handle that technical paradigm. I would say when union density was high some 50 60 years ago mm. we had a really good model for that particular industrial paradigm the problem is that as the industrial paradigm and structural change as the whole business you know the private sector has changed tremendously unions haven't been able to to move along with this yeah. we haven't been able to adapt to such a higher degree i mean the, what we talk about is actually painful things we've had to mm -hmm. to, to mm -hmm. make these necessary changes yep. uh, and i think what differentiates nordic unions from a lot of others is that because we have this pressure on ourselves to keep regulations away from legislators yep. we actually have to make some of these painful adjustments sometimes mm -hmm. yeah and actually try sometimes mm -hmm. except for example temporary agency agreements mm -hmm. 
Uh, they were legalized in Sweden in 93. One of the founding unions of the union had the first sectoral agreement in 1988 because they saw this is going to come. This has become socially acceptable. We can't stop this. Yeah. So it's better to, to get a foot in and try and regulate it and then do the best with that somehow. Yeah. Uh, and it's turned out quite well. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, not, it's not perfect, yeah. but I think it's better than anywhere else where unions have said, no, we should just ban temporary work agency agreements. Everywhere else, wow. but in many other places. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> With Frederick, Frederick, we, we could go on and on and on, but however, uh, however, we're about to be kicked out this room, aren't we? We, we are, are about to be kicked oh, out. Nice. Okay, <laughs> we talked too much okay. again. <laughs> but I only got to the 1950s. <laughs> Longer. <laughs> Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that 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 window on another world. I mean, yeah. there 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 is a, a message of of. Of warning and hope and optimism, and it's coming. It, it's coming from it's from Sweden. Yeah. There's lots and lots of, of stuff there for us to, to get our teeth into in the UK as we as we hone our organising models to meet the 21st century. Indeed. So, for the on time that. on that on that positive note, <laughs> thank company, you guys. Thank uh, you so much for having us. You. You're very welcome. Well, listeners, Becky and I were in conversation there with Frederick Nilsson, director of membership development, and Frederick. Sordukvist, who's an economist, both of them representing Unionen, the White Collar uh, Workers' Union in uh, Sweden. We hope you enjoyed that. I, I think there's so much food for thought in, in what they were saying for the way we are organising and engaging in general with uh, the current structure of the, the UK and indeed the global economy. As ever, it's been our pleasure to have your company for this podcast. If you like what you've heard, if you haven't liked what you've heard, if you've got ideas for what you'd like to hear in future podcasts, please email us at info at unions21.org.uk. Your views are important to us. Thank you to those of you who have written in already. And a special thanks to our Canadian listeners who have boosted us to a top 150 position in the Apple iTunes chart over there. Thanks very much. And if you have liked what you've heard, please do tweet us at unions21 or subscribe to the podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice before we go we must just give a shout out to beck two on the back of the news that came out late last week that two beck two reps at the ritzy picture house down in brixton in south london had not just been uh, not just been unfairly dismissed but there was an order insisting on their reinstatement uh, from an employment tribunal very rare decision but a very welcome one as well and if you read the ruling from the employment tribunal it's kind of you know it's it's slam dunk in the union's favor the judge found that there had been a lack of neutrality at the investigation and disciplinary stages and an assumption of guilt on the part of the claimants well if ever you needed an illustration of this power in a union it's right there for you so well done to all involved in that important victory well listeners that really is it for this episode of the podcast we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our last episode before christmas the last episode of 2018 until then do take good care uh, and from becky and myself goodbye <laughs>